Welcome, everyone, to episode 103 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we'll be taking a look at Dave Franco's directorial debut, the horror film, The Rental. But before we get to that, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, how was your summer break, I say in air quotes, because we all know you were taking a, a real nice, relaxing break over the last two weeks. How are you doing? Oh, yeah. So so relaxing. So relaxing. Well, I'm doing okay, Scott. The The exam is done. Uh, I don't think I got COVID, um, which honestly is kind of a miracle considering the conditions of the exam, 400 people in this one room, impossible to social distance, like literally impossible. Um, you know, proctors walking right up to you, handing you stuff, you know, just coming in contact with a lot of materials and stuff that other people had, had touched. Are you saying we were, you didn't soak your exam and hand yeah. sanitizer before you started writing on it? We were sitting like... The, w- the way that we were sitting, like we were basically th- probably th- only three feet away from the person horizontally to us and from the person that we were back to back with. So um, not great, Bob. Um, and to, on top of that, the exam sucked. But that's about uh, all I think I'm legally allowed to say about the exam. So, um, yeah, it, it, w- it was not a lot of fun. But, you know, I am I'm certainly glad to be done with things for a few weeks here going on vacation on friday um and i am going to enjoy every second of that because once i get back it will be uh, you know looking for jobs praying for good bar exam results and uh, praying for deliverance more, and looking for jobs <laughs> yes a lot more uh, a lot more stress uh coming right back so uh yeah i'm all right i guess <laughs> scott's fine guys just there you go. Check that box. I'm totally not having a mental breakdown. <laughs> well, it's going to be a much deserved vacation. So you did hear it already. We're going to save it to the end of the episode, but we will be taking next week off uh, as well as it works out well. Scott's going on vacation and I have other stuff going on next weekend. But uh, in the meantime, we have a we do have an episode for you this week. And as I already mentioned, this week's movie is the directorial debut of actor Dave Franco, who also co-wrote the film and the film. The rental starts stars his wife, Allison Brie as well as Dan Stevens, Sheila Vand, and Jeremy Allen White as a pair of brothers and their significant others taking a weekend getaway to a remote ocean view house they've rented. When they arrive, they're greeted by the house's caretaker, Taylor, who seems standoffish at best with the weekend tenants, particularly Sheila Vand's uh, character, whose last name is very Middle Eastern. And so there's some racial tension there. They even make, I think, some uh, jokes alluding to get out uh, in, in the film as, as well here. So... Uh, I guess all that's to say that this film's kind of a, a genre bender. As the weekend progresses, tensions rise between the couples and each of the significant others, leading to, like I said, a little bit of genre bending here, masquerading as a relationship drama, even maybe for the first half to two-thirds of the film, before finally settling on a horror film in its final act. Scott, did you enjoy the rental as the summer horror flick that it is, or did it leave you wishing that you hadn't rented the rental? Uh, yeah. Uh, so 
first of all, I want to say, imagine being Jordan Peele, right? And your movie after a mere three years is already like zeitgeisty enough to where people are making jokes about it in, in other movies and everyone knows what they're talking about. That uh, That's quite an achievement there. But uh, yeah, this is a pretty enjoyable little film. Um, I think that uh, it starts out, and for me, yeah, it, it feels a little familiar in the beginning, maybe a little bit of Get Out. I think The Invitation the Karen Kuzama film was the one that it reminded me of the most, um, which is actually, a, I think, a really, 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 really good movie. Um, and so I, I, you know, I was in, I was engaged by what was going on. I think the performances are good. The characters are interesting. But, um, I, you know, it smacked a little bit of familiarity uh, to me early on. And then I think in the third act, um, when it really does lean into the horror um, aspect of of the movie. I think uh, it ends up on a pretty strong note. I think that the the third act is pretty well executed. I think the the suspense, the scares work decently well. There's some interesting set pieces and stuff. Um, and so I liked, you know, the the twists and stuff that the movie takes in the third act. It's a brisk ninety minutes, if that. Um, and so, you know, it, it's night. It w went. Uh, went by pretty quickly, which was nice. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm a fan of slow burn horror, even when, um, you know, it's, it's something that we've seen, uh, you know, e even when it's similar to stuff that we've seen before, like, like I think this is to some extent, I think that the movie does set up some interesting ideas. Um, you know, there's the, there's the racial tension that you mentioned. There's just like this idea, right? Because, you know, Airbnbs are becoming more popular than ever nowadays. I mean, I guess not during COVID, but, um, you know, in the normal world, Airbnbs are relied on a lot. And um, there's just sort of this underlying like question about like, who, who are you renting from? You know? And I remember one time uh, a few years ago, I rented an Airbnb with a few friends when we were uh, going somewhere and we were like making jokes about um the fact like making jokes about there being cameras in the Airbnb and uh, stuff like that. And uh, those things actually happen though. And, and I think that, yeah, um, I mean, Dave Franco actually heard that conversation and based his movie off of it. So yeah, well, I didn't want to spoil anything, but um, yeah, I think that um, there are some interesting ideas there of like the amount of trust that we are putting in like strangers and stuff like that to, you know, provide safe and, whatever, private accommodations for us, I guess. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that they really are interested in exploring it. Like maybe they, they set those things up a little bit, right? Like they, I think they uh, act like they're going to maybe go a little bit deeper, but then when it gets to that third act, maybe the, the con of that third act is that they're kind of like, we're just going to make this a straightforward genre exercise and kind of just finish everything off, you know, as a pretty standard horror film, again, a, a well-executed one, but um uh, a genre piece nonetheless. And I think I would have liked to see them explore, um, explore that a little bit, explore some of those ideas a little bit more, just because I think that's something that could have distinguished it even more from um, a movie like The Invitation or Get Out. And I, like, ultimately those are movies that I think are going to sit with me more. Um, I like, I would be surprised if I'm thinking that much about this movie a month or so from now, but you know, I, I don't know if that's what the intention of the movie is to be honest. And I think that, as a directorial debut goes from Dave Franco, it's a pretty solid effort. And if you are a horror fan, um, I think you'll get something out of this, especially now, right? Like it's it's summer, it, like you said, Scott, it's a nice breezy, like again, less than 90 minute uh, summer horror flick. And so I think it, it more than gets the job done for what I believe it's 
mainly trying to do. Yeah, it's not a two and a half hour slog that Midsommar is even <clears throat> as enjoyable as, as that was. I know, I know for you. But no, yeah, this is what I think it is less than 90 minutes even. I think yeah. uh, it's like 88 80, or even 90, then you yeah. take out the credits it's shorter, I'm sure. So it's it's kind of fits the mold of, you know, Palm Springs last week, which was also sub 90 minutes, I'm pretty sure. And it's really enjoyable for that, I think. I mean, it was one of those things where I, I mean, we were also watching Fight Club this weekend and I was like, well, which one of these am I going to watch first? I'm, I'm going to watch the one that's 86 first. minutes. Yeah. It's 86, it's 86 <laughs> minutes. One that's 140 minutes of yeah. soap. <laughs> yeah, soap, because we can't talk about it. Uh, yeah, so I think overall it's it was enjoyable. I kind of really kind of likened it to Ready or Not last year, which is obviously a very different type, uh, different different type of horror film. It's leaning more towards the supernatural ish, and then uh, you know with some other other elements to it as well. And it's just very fun. It doesn't try to be much more than that. And I will say the one difference, which I think what you pointed out, is that these sort of half-baked or half-hearted attempts at, at adding in some additional narrative or additional themes to the film that feel like they are appropriate to throw in, uh, whether it's because of movies that have come before it or just because of the present day asking these types of questions, but certainly aren't followed through. You know, they're, they aren't really followed through on in any sort of meaningful way other than just to add a little bit of tension in earlier on to, to help build that up. Because I think that, you know, racial tension there is used to build towards the Oh, what's going to happen to these four people in this house for sure? And so it, it, it's kind of building you up that way with thematic tension. And then it, it kind of just lets that go for what this what is really just a very straightforward in terms of trope tropiness of, of the horror slasher genre um, for, for the third act, which I don't have any complaints about. Like you said, I think it's well executed. It's really, you know, really quite enjoyable uh, over the 86 minutes kind of from start to finish. But it doesn't really do much more than that, even though it might have signaled it might have done that. So it does, you know, if you're, if you're going to set it up, you probably should do something with it. You should probably should should make something of it or you're going to leave me scratching my head why you sort of even introduced or injected these different elements. Because I don't think it's necessary to do that to build the tension in that way. And uh, overall, though, even if it is not really, it's not going to be anything more than the sum of its parts. But what's there is enjoyable. I, I liked the performances. I liked, like you said, the, the sort of third act execution of, of, you know, the horror slasher nature of the film once it decided, all right, this is what we're going to be. And o overall, you know, I know there's lots of talks about maybe this sets up a sequel and Dave Franco might have some ideas for a sequel. Uh, we can talk about the ending and whether or not that makes sense or, or whether we think whether we agree that it's necessary. But yeah, I mean, I, I could I could see it right. I could um, I could potentially see that. We'll talk about that later. But before we do get to any of that, let's dive into the performances. I mean, there's really five people in this film. I, I mentioned four of them sort of in, in the setup. There's Alison Brie, who plays a woman named Michelle, whose husband, Charlie, is played by Dan Stevens. He has a brother, Josh, played by Jeremy Allen White, who's a little bit of a, I guess he'd be like the uh, the redheaded um, stepchild, yeah. stepchild of, of the family because he's been to jail before. So Charlie like owns his own business and just got i mean the whole premise of this vacation is that his company uh just got just got seed funding and they're taking this weekend getaway to you know relax after the successful you know seed funding and also celebrate that as well and his brother is tagging along he's been to jail he doesn't really hold down a steady job it seems like and yet his girlfriend is also charlie's business partner mina played by sheila vand and uh it, yeah it sets up this kind of foursome of people going out to this 
uh, Ocean View House, like I mentioned, along with, and when they get there, the house's caretaker, Taylor, who's played by Toby Huss, uh, greets them. Scott, that's really it. I mean, there is a, another character in the film who, honestly, I'm not even sure that they're billed in, in the cast. I didn't go too deep on IMDb uh, to see if it's actually there. But those are the five people of kind of four main roles, one supporting. And you, if you had to pick one or two that you think stand out among the rest, who would those be? Yeah, I think Dan Stevens is really making a name for himself in these types of movies. Like The Guest is, an, is uh, you know, another one where he, he plays a very, like, two-faced character i think he does uh, i think he does two-faced very well right because like he's he, you know he's a he's a good looking guy he has these like piercing like blue eyes mm. he seems like very like you know unassuming he's just a nice guy whatever when you know when he comes to the door at the start of the guest um and then you know you start to unravel the layers and you see that this is kind of a front and you know, it, this movie doesn't go that far unraveling as, as certainly not as much as the guest does. But um, I think that he's doing a similar he's doing a riff on that here. And I think that he is very good at playing that type of character. Um, and I, I think it works here. Um, you know, he, he, he kind of is manipulating his wife and, and everything a little bit just with his natural charm, charisma, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I, I think that uh, he, he, he's again, he's good at playing two faced. I think he, he's made it, he's got a knack for that. Um, elsewhere, you know, I think everybody is pretty solid in this, you know, the horror movies don't necessarily require like, a, a an incredible amounts of acting range or ability, but I think everyone is pretty solid. I think Alison Brie is very believable as sort of like this yuppie millennial, like, Hey, we're going to get up and go hiking in the morning. And then we're, you know, we're going to come home and we're going to take some ecstasy and dance around the living room. And, um, yeah. I, I think that, uh, you know, well, well, of course you having your glass of Chardonnay and everything. I, I thought that that was a pretty believable character and that she was believable in the role. Um, gotta love uh, Diane. Yeah. Um, for the other couple, I think that, um, Sheila Vand is good like i think again i wish that they had done more with her character um mm -hmm. just because she is set up as something a little different um and, and jeremy allen white uh, who's mainly known for shameless like i i think that um again he's fine i think he offers something a little different from dan stevens right to where um you know you're you're describing him as the redheaded stepchild i think you could see that right like it's like, yes, they're brothers, but there, there is like an unspoken tension here. They're clearly very different people that have different right. lifestyles. And, there's, and, he has, and he has a lot of insecurities about how yeah. he's a failure relative to his brother. Yeah, and there's just like a touch of awkwardness between about their relationships and about the relationships between the two couples in general, to be honest. Um, yeah. Of course, a lot of that stems from, you know, the is Mina interested in Charlie and all of this type of stuff that's going on as well, um, which is obviously a big part of the plot. But um, yeah, I think everyone saw it. I think Toby Huss, like I think he, uh, he does a good job at the beginning of playing the, you know, creepy sort of unsettling guy, you know, like he, he sets, he sets up this character nicely. Um, and then I, I think what they do is interesting. Um, because it ne doesn't necessarily go where you think it's going to go with this character. Um, and so I, I liked that aspect. That's probably more of a, you know, script directing type thing. But um, I think that um, he does a good job of setting up the character that the the filmmakers want you to buy into at the, the start of the movie, even if that, we, 
you know, we change a little bit the way that we see him uh, as the film goes on. So uh, no complaints about the cast, to be honest. Yeah, I think the, the cast is good. I, I asked you which one or two you wanted to talk about, and you, you snuck all five in there for me. So uh, I, I tried to if... keep it keep it tight, you know. No, you did. I mean, you did to keep it tight with each description, description of each person. Yeah, I, I was texting you when I was watching this, and I was like, I literally could only hear Diane when Allison Brie was was playing her character. And it's just some people will say Diane. Some people will say Annie from Community. She's made quite an impact on television. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you can you can tell which one I watch based on what I said. But she's on Glow, too. I don't know. What she is on Glow. That's that. true. But she's fun. Like, I, I, I still yeah. want to go back and watch Horse Girl earlier this year, which is kind of a starring vehicle for for her on Netflix. I know I got middling reviews, but it seemed interesting because it's dealing with mental health. But and you know, there's there's a little bit of nepotism here with her getting cast. But like, I, you know, I think she, no. you know, I think she embodies the role very well. Like, I, I don't know that you could have picked many other people who are more like well suited to this type of role. Yeah, uh, the nepotism as Scott, I think I mentioned mantra, but yes, Dave, Dave Franco's wife. Uh, so yes, yeah, so a, a little bit of an e maybe an easy casting, a softball casting here. But yeah, Dan Stevens, I really like Dan Stevens. I remember him all the way when he made his breakthrough on Downton Abbey uh from the first two or three seasons i think and yeah, i really enjoyed him on that and i feel like he's come a long way breaking out of that sort of upstairs downstairs british uh soapy kind of drama role that he played in that one and now he's you know playing you know these sort of two-faced people like you're saying the guest uh, he was in another netflix horror film a couple i shouldn't say another he was in a netflix oh, horror yeah, film the, the one about the apostle cult. what was it called the yeah. apostle yeah, yeah the I apostle he was the beast in Beauty and the Beast. I mean, he's got a great singing voice. Um, so really, really talented actor. And I'm I hope that this I don't know if this is going to be the the vehicle that gets him into bigger roles and bigger productions. But I, I think he's certainly someone who can right? I mean, because you're right. He has he has uh, the range to be sort of a duplicitous, you know, duplicitous two faced sort of character, but also have, I mean, a ton of charm. I mean, yeah, you're right. Like the blue eyes and a smile and his general Britishness with his textbook midwestern american accent that he can put on it i mean look i think he can do it it's really good yeah. and i really enjoy that so i really enjoy whenever i see dan stevens in things i think he's also speaking to someone else who's been big on tv uh, i think he was big on legion as well which was the fx i, I don't know x-men isn't it? it's like x-men tangent i think uh television show but yeah he was a main star on that and i think i had only heard good things about that as well. And then the other two, yeah, Jeremy Allen White. I like I like it that he feels different than the other three here, right? Because even Sheila Vand, even though she's I mean, she comes with a little bit different a little different baggage here. And and again, that's something that's kind of set up but never really knocked down in the film. But yeah, I mean, these sort of three people are very similar. And then you have Charlie's brother played by Jeremy Allen White. His name's Josh. And, and it's different and it's nice. It's a nice mix. He, he has a dog uh, that he brings <laughs> in secret on the trip as well, which I thought was was a funny opening scene when he's like, no, it'll be fine. Just, just bring the doc. You have to bring the doc. Um, and yeah, so overall, really good. Oh, I'm seeing where Anthony Molinari plays the man. Uh, <laughs> so there's another person we could talk about. Like the child? Uh, uh, I guess so. Baby Yoda? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, maybe. It's the man, but none of it's capitalized. It's all lowercase. It's not like an actual name. Um, yeah, so no, overall, I think I enjoyed the cast. And cool like do, like you're right i think i think it's a fair judgment to say that you don't have to do very much in this type of horror film but what they had to do they did and with that we can probably move on from the cast for now at least and and the second thing i want to talk about is sort of like i was saying the genre bendy nature of it i think we've started to allude to it or talk about it a little bit already but yeah it, it really feels like yes there's tension being introduced to the film for the first 60 minutes 
But more so than that, it, the, a lot of that tension is in the relationships, not necessarily some sort of like existential threat to these people. I mean, there is some of that. And uh, you're certainly led to believe that the there is tension between Taylor and the guests here. But a lot of the tension also comes in the relationships. And it isn't until, you know, you get past the 60 minute mark, really the first hour, of the, the first hour of the film where it decides, all right, actually, we're going to be a horror movie. And so I'd love to hear more about you, Scott, what your thoughts on is it effective in that first hour in being what it is? Is it more effective when it kind of switches gears or decides what it wants to be? How are you feeling about this overall? Yeah, I mean, again, I think I think there's there is a little bit of familiarity to the way that it's set up. The the racial tension again feels a little get get outy because like it feels a little it, cheesy, right? Like it feels a little gimmicky to mm -hmm. talk about that and then not do anything with it. Yeah, because it's not like outwardly sinister, right? Like it, it's the it's the type of like microaggression, little yeah. microaggressions, right, that you see on yeah. display and get out. Like I would have voted for Obama a third time is like the classic line that everyone already yeah, always talks about. But there is something like uh, what is it he says to her like at the the beginning? Or how'd you get mixed up with with these with this family? Like he says yeah. that to her, and there's just something not quite right about the things that he's saying, and uh, you know he doesn't respond well to being confronted. So like. You know, uh, there's there's definite tension there. You think he the watches Fight Club? <laughs> yeah, from the way that that's set up, and then you know, I, I think you can kind of see where it's going in terms of the what develops between the couples, and you know that Charlie and Mina end up having a little dalliance um, while they're in you know the strung out. Uh, yeah, well, they, yeah, they start in the hot tub, and then yeah, in the shower, um, and. Uh, you know, I, I think that part of the movie was the least interesting to me just because I could kind of see that coming. But then yeah. I think, you know, when they discovered the cameras, I was like, OK, I'm back in. Like, this is kind of the interesting little ideas that I was hoping for a little bit more of. Again, like the amount of trust you put in a stranger when they could just install a camera there. Like, look, I mean, you know, you see how small the camera is or whatever. Like, you could easily go without ever discovering it and um, all of your, you know, private acts, whatever would be, uh, you know, on display for, you know, th this person that you're basically at the mercy of. Like, I think that that's, that's an interesting idea. And the fact that nowadays we, we willingly just submit ourselves to that in the name of, um, you know, uh, I guess financial efficiency, cause it's, it's cheaper than staying in a hotel in a lot of cases, um, or better location, whatever. Um, but yeah, so, so I like, parts of the first half of the movie, but again, before it takes that left turn, um, I think that the first 20, 25 minutes or so are a good setup. After that, a little, little cliche, but then really does pick back up again um, once they discover those cameras. And I think, um, you know, doesn't really let up because, because there's not, it's not just the tension of there's, you know, Maybe there's Taylor out there as a sinister figure. Maybe somebody else out there is a sinister figure. It's like, you know, the intercouple tension of, hey, are they going to discover what happened between Charlie and Mina? And, you know, how, what's the effect of that going to be? You have yeah. Josh, the brother, who's already a loose cannon and has been to jail and all of this stuff. What's going to happen there? Um, they brought this dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you were way more concerned about the dog w than I was, which is probably not surprising given yeah. who we are as people. But um, yeah. yeah, no, I, I think it has its ups and downs. Guys, I will go ahead and spoil it for you. If you're on the fence and you don't want to see a dog murdered in a film, not nothing a happens to the dog. Yes, nothing happens to the dog. Everything's okay. 
the dog is the dog is not harmed off or on screen in this yeah. film. But hey, that uh, is kind of a spoiler because you think he's going to get it there for a little bit. I mean, you think he's just gone there for a little bit yeah. for spoilers. But I when think you, that's a kind of when spoiler. When someone disappears in a horror movie, it's never usually a good thing. <laughs> they usually don't, they don't show back up in the last two minutes of the film. Generally <laughs> not. But hey, here they do. So. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I think that the genre bending nature of it, it, it works okay. Like, part of me just wishes that it had gone, you know, it just decided it was going to be a horror movie the whole time. And part of it is that I feel like Dave Franco didn't really know how to write this these sort of like are opening parts of it or at least didn't know how to write it in a way that didn't matter right because ultimately it didn't matter yeah and i think i felt like some of the most wooden parts of the script or some of the parts of the script that fell the most flat were in that first 45 minutes and were centered around like you know how these individuals were dealing with taylor and and in you know the relationship that taylor and mina the dynamic they actually say relationship but the dynamic that they have there uh i think some of that is Gimmicky. I guess that's like the best way I can put it is just like trying to pander a little bit to uh, the millennial audience, maybe who might be who might be the targets for this film. Right. I think that's pandering a little bit to them and it doesn't really know what it what it's going to make of that. And and I don't think it's done necessarily well. I do think that the tension that rises in between Josh and the rest of the the, I guess, the the two couples here uh, is really interesting. I think that is like the like the main interesting part of the relationship is like dealing with Josh's insecurities as being kind of sort of the outcast of this foursome. I think that is some more interesting stuff, but anything to do with like the relationship tension, it just doesn't work for me. It's like fine. We've seen, we've seen it done before. Like sure, and even if you hadn't, you'd just be like, "Yep, okay, cool. This is there's nothing there's nothing particularly different or nuanced about it," and that's fine. Like it doesn't need to be. It's not the kind of film that needs to explore that in any super deep and meaningful way. And I think the film certainly benefits, even though I'm, 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 I'm knocking it for it. I think it certainly benefits by just throwing all that aside at the end and using it as a device to set up this final act and, and some certain actions that happen. I think that works. And you brought up ready or not, which like, yes, definitely takes that approach of like, we're not going to try for anything meaningful here. Like maybe they could try to say something about like wealth or whatever, because of the, you know, the family is really rich or whatever, but they're like, we're just going to have a fun, goofy movie. And I think it works, you know, really well. Like I think ready or not is definitely a better film than this. Um, Yeah, I agree. I think it works really well because of that. And, and maybe again, where this misses that bar a little bit is, the lack of originality for one thing that I think ready or not had. And then, yeah, just the fact that they can't, he can't decide exactly what he wants the movie to be until the last end. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Ready or not. I mean, a lot of fun. I mean, it was like one of the most fun movies of the summer last year, honestly, especially late summer. We're talking um, mm-hmm. before we're kind of hitting towards the award season films. And yeah, this, this gets its fun though in the final act. So why don't sure, we yeah. start talking more about that? We've talked a little bit about act one and two versus act three here. And let's talk about act three. So spoilers here for the, you know, the final half hour of, of the film, which certain things certainly kick off in the last 30 to 40 minutes of, of this movie. Scott, it kind of all starts with uh, the, this confrontation uh, between Taylor and Mina that happens when, They've just like, okay, I'll back up here. Charlie and Mina have discovered that there are cameras throughout the house and they realize that their infidelity has been, is definitely been recorded and they're worried about Taylor, who they believe has installed these cameras, um, sharing that with, you know, um, Michelle and Josh. And so they're Taylor ends up coming to the house after Michelle, 
uh, basically calls him to fix the the whirlpool or the hot tub uh, on the deck. And while he's leaving, Mina confronts him about the cameras. And this sort of like confrontation ends with Josh thinking that Taylor, this is sorry, there's just so many names. I'm not doing this well, probably. But Josh comes in thinking that Taylor is attacking Mina and ends up basically beating him to a pulp. And as they kind of freak out after the call, after this happens and are trying to figure out what to do, whether they call you know, an ambulance, call the police, what they need to do, how they're going to approach the situation, given Josh's criminal record and his history in prison. Uh, this third party comes in and strangles Taylor, uh, killing him. And so when they go back inside to see if he's basically to check on Taylor, they realize he's dead. And things kick off from there as they sort of try to dispose of the body and also find a way out without being discovered. And all the time they're being stalked by this person who has killed Taylor and is now sort of stalking them through the house and and wreaking havoc, more or less. And uh, Scott, you can get into the individual uh, glory kills, you might call them, uh, over time, over the last act here. But that's the kind of setup for this final act. Scott, what did you think of it? I mean, I think we're both in agreement here that this is the better part of the movie, the better executed part of the film. So walk me through what your thoughts are of, of it are. Yeah, so, so first of all, I like that again, the way that the Josh character is set up, right? Because like the initial inclination after T Taylor gets killed is, and I think they even say this is like, oh, we'll just call the police. We'll say it was self-defense. Like, look, there were yeah. cameras in here. Like the guy was obviously pretty kind of racist. Like it wouldn't be that hard to make the police believe what, you know, whatever. But the fact that Josh is an ex-con, right? Like he's been yeah. in jail. There's like, I, I think that that's like a nice plot device, right? To get you to why they then decide, oh, we have to dispose of the body ourselves. Um, Certainly once it's dead, once yeah. they discover that he's dead. Yeah. Yeah. And the way that they dispose of the body is actually very like darkly comedic. Like I, yeah. I wrote in my letterbox, this has the funniest F-bomb of the year because they push the, the body over the edge, uh, like trying to push it into the water and it like lands on a ledge uh you know above the water like a very steep ledge right where somebody is gonna have to climb out there and get it and put themselves in danger and dan stevens just screams out of that the f word and it's it's quite amusing but um i thought it's, that was really the other use of the f word that i remember in the film too is from allison brie when she's like just got high and they realize the dog is gone and she's like they yeah the dog <laughs> yeah um but i thought that was really clever like the yeah the, you know, pushing the body over it, not making it all the way down. Like I thought that some, added some really nice suspense, right? Because then Josh has to go down on the steep, you know, ledge and, and get it or whatever. And uh, I thought that that was, that was effectively done. I think and, that, and the funny part of that too, is that the first they try to like throw big rocks down and like knock him off and mm -hmm. they're just like bashing his head. Yeah. In. I, I think know. that the, the sticking point is kind of right. Whether you, what you think about Taylor not being the, the actual like killer in the end, right? Because I think that is where he decides, that is where Dave Franco decides like, hey, we're not gonna, we're just gonna make this a standard horror flick here because um, like, I, I think it, it, it has its pros and cons, right? Because like the pro I think is that it's a nice twist, right? Like you don't see that coming. Everything that has been set up in the movie makes you think that Taylor is a creep. If there's gonna be anyone killed, Taylor is gonna be the one doing the killing. Um, he's the one who's installed the cameras, right? Like, but none of that turns out to be true. It turns out to be the man who is doing all of this. And so that's a nice twist. You don't see it coming, but at the same time, right? Like it, it kind of, once you do that, it kind of abandons any opportunity that you had for like a commentary necessarily about this character because, you know, yeah, he's probably a little racist, but like 
he is he wasn't a bad guy he, yeah. he wasn't a traditionally bad guy yeah i mean you could argue that he still is a bad guy yes but. yeah yeah of course but uh, we're all bad guys. But um, but it, it does ask a, a different interesting question that not one that you're talking about here. It certainly plays on the the fear that like whoever you're renting an Airbnb from can't be trusted. But it plays on this different idea of that. Like you don't know who's rented the Airbnb before you yeah. because what this ends up being. And I think we can talk about the ending here in a little bit. But what the ending sort of shows and what we discover has happened is that it's a previous tenant of the house that has installed all these cameras, all these monitoring devices, and then, you know, essentially wreaks havoc on, on the future tenants. Yeah. And I like, that's interesting, but I find that a little more far-fetched. Like, like, I think the idea that the person who is, you know, running the Airbnb is organizing the Airbnb is like, mm -hmm. you know, more of a creep. Like, I, I just see that as a more realistic possibility than like, yeah. It's certainly more traditional. You yeah. has set up all of these cameras and stuff like that. I don't know. I feel like that's a little bit of a stretch, but um, yeah, it's no. But I, it certainly makes for an interesting twist, though, because that that because yes. it preys on that that I guess that stereotype that this Airbnb uh, owner is the one who's going sure. to be the creep or whatever, and it's really just someone else, right? Um, yeah. So, so like I said, I think it it works for like the storytelling perspective. It's a nice twist. Again, like you said, it upends your expectations, but they lose their their. Um, opportunity maybe to make like a serious thematic comment there. But the only other thing I'll say is I really liked what's her Nina. name again. Nina. Uh, her <laughs> death uh, scene was was really good. Like the yeah. running through the fog, very insomnia esque with the man chasing her. And and you know again unexpected moment. She just runs right off the cliff and dies. Like while she's in the does fog. Does she die though? Does she die? Yeah. Maybe she fell on the ledge too. Um, who knows? But uh, maybe she'll maybe be back for the sequel. Maybe there's the sequel, but um, she would be the only one to make it back. I think. I think the others are are oh, pretty yeah, dusty. But um, since yeah, they got no, bashed, their their all their heads are bashed in pretty pretty aggressively. Uh -huh. I uh, I think that I I really like the way that that was shot, and it was a creative kill, right? I think. I mean, that's when you're going when you're making a slasher movie like this, like you know, uh, you score a lot of points for creativity and kills. I mean, the, some of the best slasher movies are the ones which come up with the craziest ideas for kills, like Scream, the Tatum getting stuck in the garage door, like is, is you know, a great example. But um, so, so I think they, they had a nice job of having that one really nice creative kill in there. So overall, I think the last act really works. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I don't know if I have too much more to add other than that. Is that like, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't really expend too many calories on, we'll say, josh or uh charlie or michelle's kills but you get a lot of mileage i think out of out of mina's and if you can walk away from a slasher movie saying okay i got one good kill then you know you probably you're probably okay with it right you're not going to be over the moon but you're going to be okay with it and, and i enjoyed that and, and yeah some nice tension and i like i really like that it it takes those like it, it preys on your fears or uses those stereotypes that we were talking about and really doesn't turn it on its head, but twists it around and says, you know what, this person who you thought was the creep, who would be the one who's going to, you know, terrorize these, you know, these two couples. It's actually not him. You know, he might have been not the best guy, but he wasn't at fault here. Yeah. Uh, and he's also just a victim of this, of this killer of this guy. Yeah. And so I, I really, I really liked that little twist on it. I enjoyed it. And I enjoyed pretty much uh, once, once the killing started, I pretty much had a great time. Yeah, the the last moment of the movie is also like you know talking about setting it up for a sequel. I mean, I yep. think that, let's talk about that. That would be where they what they want to go, right? Because you know, like you said, we get the reveal that this was like a previous tenant of the house, um, 
and then we see like a another couple coming into the house right and and um living there and then like the last image is staying there and the last image is like him running into their bedroom like you know, getting ready to kill them and then it just fades to black. So, um, yeah, yeah, because he actually he actually does it in a different place, right? Like, it's, yeah, he goes into this new rental uh -huh. um, and installs all of the stuff. And then, yeah, he's watching them. And you're at the last the last shot there is presuming that he runs in and kills them. So, yeah, the kill the killer is very much alive at the end of this movie. And as we have seen from other slasher movie franchises, even when the killer is almost definitively dead, that won't stop. <laughs> from making another movie or another six movie. So I could yeah. easily see Dave Franco coming back for a second one, but based on this, I would like to see, he definitely has directorial talent. So I, I would like to see him go in a different direction, but like if he's a horror guy, if he really likes doing this stuff, then, you know, go for it. But I, I think his talents could be used well elsewhere. So. Yeah. I mean, is he a horror guy? I don't know. Dave, Dave Franco. I don't, I don't, I don't think he uh, horror films. Guy, like he made this as his directorial debut. Who knows? Maybe, maybe just because, you know, it's kind of a low, low budget. It's a more low budget genre. Like you can execute a good horror film without having like, a ton true. of money. And um, that is true. Probably didn't have a ton of money for this. Um, being a yeah, first, ever. even even though he is a name, like. Yeah, I mean, the, I think I don't know what the budget was, but I'm sure it was really small. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good point. Like if you're, if you're going to try to make a movie that has that maybe makes some waves in the genre category on a low budget, horror is not a bad way to go. So really? I think it's a, it probably is, you know, maybe, maybe we'll look back in five years and say this movie was just really a means to make the movie he actually wants to make. Right. To make like, his Batman Begins. <laughs> sure. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, I kind of. It was blank check. Yeah. Doubt that, I really. But. Yeah, 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 totally. But no, I, I can see him doing more stuff in the future and I'd look forward to it. I, I think mm -hmm. that it, he'll only probably get more refined as he goes on and uh work towards you know whatever he actually wants to make because i presume this isn't his dream movie but maybe it is i don't know maybe, so. maybe he's just gonna call it quits now huh? <laughs> i did what i wanted to do yeah. this is it guys i'm done i'm gonna retire yeah. uh yeah last question before we do wrap things up here i would like to ask you uh what you think this movie is trying to do like is it do you think it's just trying to be fun do you think it's trying to have some higher meaning or deeper thematic exploration just fails because i think that's what we we both agree that if that is the case it fails or you think it's trying to do both um yeah i would just be curious like what, what you ultimately think about what this movie is trying to be and then if you were going to recommend this movie to someone how would you recommend it to them yeah i would just recommend it as like a fun summer slasher movie i, I don't think i would sell it as any more than that because i don't think again i think as we've said it's not really trying to do anything more than that i think it clearly decides in the last act that it's going to be a you know a, a fairly straightforward horror slasher film but you know like you said maybe there's a little bit of something there with the person before you in the house or whatever what what could they be who could they be um but i, I don't think again i don't think they're really going too deeply into that except to you know set up the sequel right to set up this idea that hey he's going to go to a new house and do it again and kill someone again um yeah. But like, I don't think you get anything out of the racial element. I don't think you get anything out of the um, re relationships, except for maybe drugs are bad and you shouldn't do them because it's going to cost you to uh, cheat on your your wife, maybe um, whether whether you want to or not. Um, I think he clearly wanted to, but um, it's in yeah. his blood. Yeah, yeah, true. Uh, so, yeah, right, because they set that up, too, about like, oh, maybe he's done this before with his past girlfriends, and she starts yeah. getting suspicious of him, and then that just gets confirmed. But it's all sort of red herrings in a way. But, um, 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't think that this is anything, anything more than, you know, ultimately I think, I think it's like ready or not. Right. It, in the end, it's just like a fun movie, but not, not as good as ready or not. Like it, it's not, it's not Midsommar, right? Like it's, it's not, there's clearly it's not, not art. Yeah. Well, it's not art. It's, it's not cinema. Um, yeah. No, but Midsommar clearly has a very um, deep thematic, like, culture bad yeah exactly <laughs> uh running through it of like you know about relationships and people staying in relationships long after they're they should be and gaslighting and all of this stuff and that's just not what they're trying to do here i don't know charlie's probably trying to gaslight her a little bit uh in the in the bedroom when they're talking about it so maybe fair but it's not maybe really this film is as much art as midsommar <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure there are people out there who think that but those people would be wrong. Those people have been drinking too much of the, uh, what is it, the herbal tea or whatever that they give them at uh, at the Harga. Well, you're the expert here. Yeah. Mushroom tea. That's what it is. Mushroom tea. All right, Scott, let's wrap things up. Favorite scene or moment from the rental? Yeah, I mean, I've mentioned a lot of them. I think the pushing, I'll go with the pushing the body off the ledge and, or, you know, off the, off the edge and it, it falling there on the ledge and, you know, the sort of comedy that comes from that, which is a nice... You know, nice moment of levity to ease some of the tension before, you know, it really dials you back in. And then, you know, the subsequent suspense of like him having to go down there and get the body and stuff like that. I, I thought that that was well done. Yeah, I uh, I'll go with something different. The the dancing scene right after they the hard cut to the dancing right after they took ecstasy is so funny. That is yeah, they're genuinely like, just very up, funny. I'm not going to go too hard or whatever. And then they're just like swaying dan stevens is like dan is like basically mosh pitting on his own in the corner yeah it's very funny very funny scene all right scott put a score on it out of 10 what are you giving the rental 7.1 a solid genre effort um and i am encouraged to see more from dave franco as director yeah not too pretty much the same for me 6.8 it's a good film not quite great but in the future i think the show's promised for for dave franco so definitely give it a watch uh i never saw crawl last year but i feel like this is probably the same b flavor horror film of uh like crawl, crawl. Better, yeah all right every every horror movie last summer was better than this so never mind don't watch it, it. was yeah no i mean it, it honestly was like i'm sorry yeah, you didn't watch like, the I nun like, i like this movie yeah i didn't i didn't watch the nun or was brahms the boy too last summer no i think that was no, that was like that was like a couple months ago <laughs> Yeah. Um, oh my god brahms the boy too get out of here or, or the curse of la llorona i believe that that's was the one i was thinking of the nun was the, the previous year, year. Oh, yeah yeah um, yeah yeah, but it's not as good as those movies. Like, I'm sorry, it's not, but it's good. It is yeah. good. It's fun. It's it's fun above above all else. If you're if you're trying to find an artsy horror film, this isn't the one. But uh, it's it's fun. It's fun nonetheless. Uh, six six point eight for me. Seven point one from Scott. Check it out. But with that, that should do it for our discussion of the rental. Let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be talking about uh, a couple big news items from last week. One, of course, being the Emmy nominations, and the other being that. Uh, what is this? AMC is going to show Universal Films in its theaters again? Who would have thought that would happen? We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. As I mentioned before the break, we have a couple news items to knock out here before we call it a day. And the first is that uh, the tussle between AMC and Universal, the dogfight that is whether or not AMC will show Universal films after Universal broke the theatrical window by bringing Trolls World Tour simultaneously to SVOD or 
yeah, yeah, SVOD, video on demand, whatever. Um, and and the movie theaters uh, at the same time, they didn't like that very much. They said, you know what, you can do that Universal, but we're never showing your movies in our theaters again. Well, that controversy has uh, had a new development this past week as AMC and Universal struck a deal to where it shortens the theatrical window with AMC to 17 days. That's three weekends and basically allows Universal to take their movies to to VOD after the 17 days are up and AMC will get a cut of the VOD release dollars, the VOD dollars uh, up to the typical theatrical window, which would be three months. So from you know, 12 days to 90 days, it's getting a cut. Sorry, not 12, 17 days to 90 days. It's getting a cut of the VOD money. That, see, that's only between AMC and Universal. So Universal's presumably going to make a similar deal with a bunch of the other chains, whether it's Regal, Cinemark, Landmark, all these other theater chains uh, are going to have to cut their own deals basically with Universal. And who knows if other studios will try to cut similar deals. But that seems to be the precedent that has now been set. Scott, what do you make of this? Do you think other theater companies are going to strike a deal with Universal? Do you think other other movie production companies are going to strike deals with theaters? How do you see this? I mean, I think that Universal really got away with one here. Like, I think that this deal is going to be better for them. I think that if theaters are smart, that they probably won't try to enter deals like this, because I think that this is really going to hurt, you know, theaters in, in terms of people who know that they can see a movie on, on demand, like that they can buy a movie on demand are going to, in within 17 days of it, like being in theaters, I think the incentive is, almost gone for people to go to the theaters and actually watch the film. Like, I, I think that, uh, especially if you're talking about like families, right. And family films, which are definitely going to be, you know, some of the films, which I think are going to be affected by this deal. Like, you know, you talk about taking your whole family. Like if you're a four person family, right. Two kids or whatever, that's like 40 bucks for tickets. And then, you know, you have concessions and stuff. That's like it. That. If you're in a small market, I mean, if yeah, you're in Boston exactly. here, that's 80 bucks. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you're talking about concessions and everything. I mean, yeah, you could be pushing a hundred dollars if you're in Los Angeles or something. Easy. Whereas, you know, if you stay home, you can buy the movie for 20 bucks. You can throw your mi microwave popcorn that costs a dollar in the, in the microwave and everyone's happy. Like I, like, I think we thought that AMC probably had the superior bargaining power here, uh, initially when this whole thing went down, but I don't know. I think universal is probably going to be pretty happy with. I mean, yes, AMC is getting money, whatever. But I think that the actual turnout at the theaters is going to be lower and that uh, the incentive is going to be gone for some of the people. I mean, obviously, like us, but we're not the people who are like target targeted by this. Like, like we're always going to go to the theaters, I think, to see, to see movies. But um, I think your, your average moviegoer to whom maybe is already a little frustrated with the rising price of everything at the movies, tickets, concessions, otherwise, um, and with covid you know being what it is like people may not want to go to the movie theater for a year a year and a half after this who knows like how long it's going to be um i i'm a little surprised i guess that the theaters are doing this i guess you know they could see the long game a little bit and that they're going to be making enough money or whatever but um i think that this will hurt uh theater attendance if if more studios jump on board like it, I mean, like Universal, yeah, they have some big properties and stuff like that. I don't think we're going to see like a huge macro change from just Universal being doing this, um, but we could. Like, and if other studios jump on board, then yeah, I think theaters could be in some trouble. Yeah, I, I think it's an it's an interesting deal, right? You're, oh, we don't know what percentage 
that AMC is going to be getting from the VOD sales. And obviously that percentage is going to mean a lot. This is an outlandish number. So they're not going to, they're most likely not getting 10% of the VOD. But let's say they're getting 10%. The deal looks a lot better if they're getting 10% yeah. of the VOD all of a sudden. But what I think that you're, the point you're making is that it's definitely going to hurt attendance. But what I'm curious is less about, um, I guess, family movies. Cause I guess I'm curious about it, right? Because I wonder if family movies will actually be the ones that are effective. Because I think the ones that almost certainly will go more direct to VOD after 17 days in the theaters almost certainly will be the indie movies, right? So things coming out of focus features, for example. Like a lot of those movies, smaller titles, probably on a smaller budget. And honestly, no one goes and sees in the theater are probably going to do a lot better. Now, like think about something like the high note or whatever it gets its 17 day run in the theaters and goes to streaming and it's probably going to be a lot more successful on streaming because yes even if it costs 20 dollars, right that's more palatable even for if you're in a major market even for a couple having like a date night that's mm-hmm. that that is 30 to 40 dollars in tickets right there so you're immediately saving almost 50 percent just renting it and i and i think that that will be attractive as people cheap get used dates to will thank us <laughs> Cheap dates, absolutely. I think that it just becomes more attractive, and as people get, especially now in, in in COVID, getting very used to streaming, getting almost very accustomed to streaming, that it's almost the default now, rather than going to the theater, because obviously you can't do that right now. And I think that it really is a, a good strategy for indie, for the indie smaller budget type movies. I don't know that family movies will exercise that seventeen day window to VOD. Because I think that the studios, because so, like the bottom line is Universal is going to make more money in theater. Like, like the movie will make more money in theaters because ticket prices are so expensive. And if they just choose to not take those movies to VOD, which they have the right to, like it's not like every movie now from Universal is going to go to VOD after 17 days. Like Jurassic World, Fast oh, yeah, Fast no, that 9, th- those movies are not going to VOD after 17 days. Those movies are going to be in theaters for months. And I think that movies... You know, I, I don't know, like Minions or whatever, like whatever the Minions, next Minions movie is that I think, I think that's a universal property, right? I think that's DreamWorks. Um, no, it's Illumination. Illumination. Oh, I, I don't know. I think it's universal. Uh, anyway, I, I think that the, those movies, yes, it, it might go to, to VOD, but they're also big dollar, you know, big dollar like in terms of budget. Like they, they cost a lot to make animated movies, like 90 to $100 million. Even if you have the 17 day, you know, VOD window, you're making 20 bucks a pop. Like, are you really going to break the budget? Are you really going to make that money back? Um, and it, and, if, and you're just going to have to message that, right? Like Universal is going to have to do a really good job messaging that you know, this movie is going is, is not going to go to VOD. And it's this weird balancing act that they have to do of not shooting themselves in the foot, right? Because like, you're right. As soon as somebody's, as soon as they come out and say, you know, this movie, it's going to VOD in 17 days. No one's going to go see it in theaters. Like, like, am I like, are you or I going to go see that movie in theaters? Like maybe if we're really interested in it, but otherwise we're just like, Okay, whatever. Like, I'll just wait till it comes out uh, on streaming. Yeah. And, and we're people who are going to be the most avid theater goers, right? So I think they have to be really careful with how they market that. And I just think that movies, certainly like the big tentpole blockbusters, those aren't going to go. And I think that the animated movies might not go either because they can really milk the the, the you know the movie ticket prices there for families like you know three, four, five person families. I mean, that's a lot of money that they're leaving on the table if it's going to a twenty dollar VOD um, rental. And, and so I wonder if the family movies will make it to VOD as quickly or if maybe if it's some intermediary step like they go to VOD after a month or two months or whatever it is. Uh, I, I'll be curious to see how it plays out because there's some flexibility there. Yeah, I mean, I, I see your point. I guess I was just thinking about Troll, Trolls World Tour, right, being the movie that started this. And obviously, yeah. Universal was very pleased with how that did on 
VOD. Well, I um, said they were. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, I, I think you're probably right about like like Minions, for example, is like that's going to make a lot of money. Those movies make a lot of money. But like something like Trolls World Tour, I mean, would that have you know, done numbers at the box office. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. So, so maybe more, some of these more like mid-level animation franchises or like original animation features, um, like Abominable, for example, was one last year or two years ago, I think. Um, maybe year. that will be the type of thing that they, um, you know, move to VOD quicker um, as opposed to something like Minions, right? Which has a long franchise, which has a good track record of making, you know, a, a lot of money. Yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. Yeah, and I think the point that you're making here, and I think it all what it ultimately boils down to, is like if it is a movie that would make bank at the box office, it is going to be at the box office. Yeah. Like it's, it's not going simple to when you really like think about it, I guess. But <laughs> yeah, and there of course on the margin, there's going to be interesting decisions made about okay, you know this like we're projecting this movie is going to make I don't know thirty million at the box office. It's like some I don't know indie indie movie that they're showing. Like I, I mean, I used the high note earlier, but you can sort of plug in any like Promising Young Woman. That's another one that yeah. hasn't come out yet. Like, what are the projections for that? How are we doing? And this is something they can even decide like two weekends in, right? All right, it's doing really well. We'll just leave it, right? We're just going to leave it. We're going to leave it in theaters longer than we have expected. It's doing poorly. Crap, we're going to pull it. And we're just going to release this thing on VOD. Uh, it, it just allows the studio a lot of flexibility. And it reduces the downside, I think, for AMC, especially if the movie isn't doing well at their box office, <laughs> you know, and they're showing it in theaters. So that costs money. That costs money for the studios. It costs money for the theaters to be showing films that aren't getting any attendance, right? Um, and you bring that to VOD, and then everyone's winning there. Well, I should say everyone, but AMC and Universal are winning. If all of a sudden, it starts doing well on VOD. Yeah. So there's a lot more flexibility, maybe with some more interesting decisions to be made. Uh, I You won't see a franchise <laughs> going to VOD after, after three weekends. Yeah, although I would be more inclined to watch Jurassic World 3 if it went to VOD than going out to the theaters. But I guess uh, whenever it does come out, I'm going to have to bear this cross one at least one more time for the for the podcast. You say that, but it's it's cheaper to go to the movies. I mean, I guess I mean, I guess it's virtually the same price for us. But well, like, but you're, you're underestimating the fact that it if uh, this movie went to VOD, I could probably watch it for free, and that's all I'm going to say <laughs> because I still have my character and fitness check for the bar exam to go through. So moving past that, Scott, that's that. We'll see how that develops. We'll see if more if more theater chains or if more studios jump on board making those types of deals. Uh, I think the likes of Disney is very unlikely to to strike a deal just because. Do they release anything that's not a tentpole? Honestly, like I'm not even sure that they that they release movies that aren't tentpoles unless they did something like 20th Century, the 20th Century Banner or Fox Searchlight or things like that. Or just Searchlight now, I shouldn't say Fox. Um, yeah, so I think that's unlikely, but I don't know. Maybe Sony goes this direction. I could see Sony going this direction as well and trying to strike a deal, you know, especially with with movies under the the Screen Gems banner. Uh, particularly, I think that's that's one like a searching. What if I think would have been really. Uh, a good candidate for the type of movie that might go to VOD after a few weekends, even if it is a movie that I'd strongly recommend seeing in theaters. Not that I, you'll have I, that I, chance we're gonna see all these in theaters anyway, but yeah, for the yeah. Episode. I mean, when we have a vaccine, sure, but I don't know. Yeah. The more I've thought about it, I don't. Even if theaters reopen in a month, I don't have any appetite to go back to them. I Certainly don't think not a month. No, uh, yeah, two, three months, even right. I don't think anything's. The thing is, I don't think anything's going to change in two or three months. So, <laughs> so we're stuck there, I guess. I anyway, know. the other piece of news this week is not necessarily movie related. Uh, although there are some TV movies and one movie that it, that we have watched and reviewed on this podcast that is nominated uh, at this award show, and that is the Emmy nomination. Scott, you wanted to talk about this, so why don't you tell us about it? 
Yes. So, uh, you know, obviously a lot of talking points from this. Um, I, I guess a couple of things that stuck out stuck out to me from the, the Emmy nominations. First of all, it seems like the same things get nominated every year. I don't know if this is your impression as well, Scott, but like in the major comedy and drama series, um, you know, category. No Game of Thrones, baby. Well, yeah, because it doesn't exist anymore. But um, it, it just seems like when I look at these nominations, it seems like it's a money game, right? Like it's just whoever pays the most because like, you know, who is watching the Kaminsky method, for example? Like is anyone watching a lot the, of people? Oh. Chuck Lorre sitcom on Netflix? Like, okay. I think that people are. I just think they, they are. Not. I have never met a single person who watches the Kaminsky method. Like I can. Have you ever asked anyone if they watch the Kaminsky method? No, I don't see anyone talking about it. Like, on Twitter, on whatever, like, even though I don't watch that much TV, I'm like, I mean, definitely not film Twitter. Well, yes, but like I was about to say, I, I, uh, I'm still pretty plugged into like entertainment Twitter in general. And yes, even people on film Twitter, like talk about TV shows and stuff that they watch. Um, I just meant the Kaminsky method, but yeah. Yeah. I just don't see anyone watching this show. Like it, and it just surprises me that it's getting nominated, but again, it's Chuck Lorre, right? Like he has a good track record, I guess, but, um, he sucks, but um, I mean, I, I feel like this year, this year's nominations are actually a little bit different, right? I mean, if anything, like are they though? like wh what we do in the shadows is nominated for best comedy yeah. series, which is very different. Sure. Uh, I mean, Curb Your Enthusiasm is like prestige comedy, I guess it's you'd expect that. Um, I mean, Insecure is there. I mean, I don't know if it was nominated last year or not, but I mean, that's a different show. I mean, that's a all black uh, show, you yeah. know, black black actresses uh, and sort of giving sort of like the African American experience and in the U.S., especially when something like uh, was it Black? Did Blackish get nominated? I don't think so. But I mean, I know Anthony Anderson was nominated again for like the thirtieth time yeah. for that show. I'm just tired of seeing like the Ozarks and the Better Call Sauls and all this stuff. Like, I know the shows are good, but like, are they really still that good? Like, however many seasons we're into it, like, I mean, look at their reviews. Yeah, they are <laughs> elsewhere. Um, I I don't know. I again, maybe this is just me not watching that much TV. I mean, but... a lot of critics say Better Call Saul is the best show on television for yeah, the last yeah. two, no, two years. That's fair. Yeah. So so maybe I made no point whatsoever with that. But I, I just think that I, I would just appreciate it if the Academy of TV um, would take a few more chances in their nominations. Like it feels like we're saying uh, the same thing about the Oscars we have been for years. Um, and you know, the Oscars showed a little bit of promise this past year, but. It, they just feel a little safe to me, but maybe that's just because what the best shows are is pretty, you know, agreed upon. And uh, it's these same shows every year. Um, like I'm certainly I not going to argue about the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, right? Like that's my favorite show. I think it deserves to get nominated for all three seasons. So maybe, uh, you know, that's undercutting my own point, but uh, again, there, there the is difference just, is you've watched that show and you haven't watched the other ones. I think it's yes, probably there, there is a familiarity about it. And like, I would love to see like, you know, high fidelity or something else that I watched, like at least get an acting nomination, right? Because there's so many acting nominations. Like there's like seven or eight people in some of these categories. And a lot of times it's just like going, it's like three, two or three people from the same show are getting nominated. Like at least that could be somewhere where you're spreading the wealth. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. And, and obviously one thing that you're talking they, about succession who had three people nominated for it. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Game of Thrones in previous years. But this, this stems for me from like the fact that normal people, you know, didn't get nominated for limited series TV movie. I understand that like, or that like limited series is a tough category this year with like little fires everywhere and unbelievable and watchmen, like all of these unorthodox. Things. Yes. Um, yeah. But like, I, I just don't see how it 
you know, didn't deserve to be in there, or at the very least, right? Again, looking at acting nominations, like why did Daisy Edgar Jones not, not get nominated for Best Actress? And tough field, sure, but like they, you know, there's a lot of nominations in a lot of these other categories. Just just throw her a bone. I I, I don't know. I just think that. Um, I mean, I think they threw the show a bone. They nominated Paul Mescal in a very competitive Best Male did, outstanding yeah. male actor. I was um, just I'm just discontented with the fact that it seems like nothing that I really watch. I guess. Uh, and and the stuff that I I watch I usually I mean I really think I really like and and is really good, um, but other than Mrs. Maisel, which obviously is like prestige um, comedy and everything, like I, you know they they don't seem to be showing a lot of love for other stuff. But aside from all of this, I uh, mean, but I think I think the thing that you think about though is that most of what you're watching are limited series. Like High Fidelity is a limited series, right? Like it's not a. Is it, would it be considered best? Would it be considered a drama series or a limited series? I mean, I think that they would try to bring it back for a season two. Like, I would not be surprised at all if there's a season two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I don't know the answer to that question, but like limited, se- like, I think like to me, what I look to is like the limited series category, right? Yeah. And I'm like, this is like more, comp- like, this is more competitive than, than the Oscars. Like, honestly, like limited series categories, like even more competitive than the Oscars. And the fact that normal people wasn't nominated, I think is a bummer to me, but I look at the nominations and I'm like, okay, little fires everywhere. Like it, like, it got, it seems got like the same old, like Reese Witherspoon. Like we're going to, ad- we're going to adapt whatever the middle-aged mom's book of the week is. And that's, but that's be- about racial tension. I mean, that's, I mean, that's between her and Carrie Washington and it's about, sure. it's a race drama. Sure. But like the, uh, if you look at the reviews for that, they're not like glowing or anything. Like I, I think if, if I were to single out anything from that category, it would probably be that like i feel like at this point reese witherspoon just like breathes and and we'll, we'll get something nominated um i mean the morning but, show wasn't nominated though it wasn't i, I thought it so. got like a lot of nomination i mean it wasn't i don't maybe it wasn't up for best comedy series but like i thought it got a lot of acting nominations i don't know but it, it might have got a lot of acting nominations but it did not get it did not get a nomination okay in like an outstanding category sure. um i i stand by my point Sure. No. And I'm just saying that I think that in spite of what you say is like it was lukewarm reviews. I mean, it has over an 80 percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Like it has really strong reviews uh, overall. And I mean, I don't know what normal people had, but I'm sure it's in the same range in terms of Rotten Tomatoes score. And and I mean, I still would have chosen normal people, but I haven't seen, you know, Little Fires Everywhere. I haven't seen Unorthodox. I haven't seen Mrs. America yet. These are all shows that I want to watch, um, but there's just so much good stuff out there. And it's kind of hard because I think there's very few things that really rise above maybe even like the great standard of tv out there and when they do you know like a watchman i would argue normal people although i'm sure some people wouldn't um you know unbelievable like those things rose above the above everything else i think in the last year for me and to get two of those three nominated out of five like okay like i'll take it like i wish i wish it went it fell slightly differently but and uh zendaya getting nominated for uh... yeah that was big Euphoria was big too. I I enjoyed that. But like, there's another example, like I would have liked to see Euphoria, which yes, comes from HBO, which, you know, cleans up uh, generally with nominations. But like Euphoria seems like a more risk taking show, maybe for HBO. And like, it's about teenagers and everything. And I just feel like stories about teenagers don't get enough validation in award season usually. Um, So I think Euphoria getting a best drama series nomination would have been cool. But you know, you, you you take what you get. But Scott, the other big talking point, right, uh, is that 
you know, talking about doing something a little different, maybe with the drama series category, the Mandalorian was nominated for outstanding drama series and 14 other nominations. Of course, the technical categories are like, there's just yeah. so, so a lot many. of the creative arts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's why there's, it, you know, 15 sounds like a lot, but like, you know, most of those are technical. I think there I mean, was Mrs. Maisel's the same way. It has 20 nominations, but like yeah. 15 of them are in the creative the production design is like incredible. But, um, yeah the uh but like i think pedro pascal did get like an outstanding voice nomination and also giancarlo esposito got nominated for like best supporting guest actor really? in a drama series yeah guest oh yeah there are guest actors and and yeah. supporting actors they're not the same thing yeah um because he's only in what one or two episodes um i don't know and, it's supporting uh, actor no it's supporting actor yeah it, there's no guest actor i was wrong about that he's in supporting actor for, but for Gus Fring for Better, Better Call Saul. Okay, for Mandalorian, he got nominated for a guest actor. Um, that's what I was talking about. Um, okay, well, but that's not in the main categories here. That probably is. It's probably one of the further yeah, down categories. It's guest yeah. actor or whatever, because he's only in one or two episodes of Mandalorian. But like, this is a surprise, right, Scott? This is a you know franchise uh, action based series from Disney Plus. Um, you know, John Favreau backing these things. Like this is, you know, the the equivalent of a Marvel or Star Wars movie, like getting nominated for Best Picture, which, like, you know, we had Black Panther or whatever, but that was kind of a that was kind of its own thing, right? And what that said, um, you know, it, about race and everything at the time, I think was a big motivating factor for that getting nominated for Best Picture. Um, but I think this came out of nowhere, honestly, for this to be nominated for outstanding drama series. I think it's really cool. Like, I really like the show. I think it's very good uh, Star Wars, you know, television. It's just very good Star Wars storytelling. I think the performances are all good. Like, I like The Mandalorian a lot, but I could not have seen this coming. And I think it's pretty cool. Like, whether whether it actually is one of the seven or eight best drama series out there, I don't know. But, like, the fact that it's be getting recognized in this way, like, look, it's not getting recognized really that much in in the acting categories or anything like that but that is so that is the academy of television people saying hey look we recognize that this is a good thing in its own right like this is a very successful at being a genre tv series and like excelling in the technical aspects and storytelling and stuff like that is just as important we're going to put that on the same level as you know prestige television like succession and ozark and all of that stuff like and that is i think what we're asked what we've been asking for from the Oscars from the, the you know, the Ampus for like so many years. Um, yeah. And but isn't so that what they've done with black, like the, the like Black Panther and things like that when they nominate one, they have like yeah. their token nomination. Right, right. But that's the thing. Like it, it is, it is to tokenizing it a little bit because I think, and I, like I said, I think they went for Black Panther because it was his like statement to nominate this movie about like, african-americans and like where where black culture. culture is such a huge part of the the film i think that they were doing that to make more of a statement than they were maybe validating the film the mandalorian doesn't have like anything like that in it like it's 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 just a straight up you know sci-fi action series um, sure. and so i think i think like a better comparison would be like if the oscars had nominated like logan for best picture or something like yeah obviously they did nominate it for screenplay but um you know, Logan or Avengers Endgame or something like that, if those had gotten nominated for Best Picture, then that would have been maybe a validation. But like, I don't know how much I can read into the Black Panther nomination. Sure, that's fair. Also, just a quick correction, it's not Pedro Pascal, it was Taika Waititi who got right, nomination yeah, yeah, for right. voice. I thought it was Pascal, but then I remember someone saying it was it was Taika. Yeah. For playing yep. IG-88. Yes, IG-11, but yes. IG-88 is a different character. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, that's that's my thoughts on on all of that. Cool to see Mandalorian. Great to see you know this is Maisel, um, Zendaya. Those are those are kind of the standout highlights for me. Um, but beyond that, just you know, kind of more of the same. And you know, I'd be surprised if we don't see kind of the same people winning the awards. Like you know, back in the day, we had Brian Cranston winning like six years in a row. And um, that's the thing with TV that. series, right? Is that it's gonna it's the drama series, comedy series categories. They're gonna be the same every year because it's the same shows are on every yeah. single year, right? Like it's. Like in terms of returning versus new shows that are happening that like not on the networks, right? Like, cause obviously, I mean, the networks are like dead, right? Like they don't, they don't get anything like ABC, CBS, Fox, um, NBC, like they're not making anything that's getting nominated, but you know, out here on Netflix, who has, I mean, by far and away the most nominations of any studio and HBO, like most, even then still most of the series and the drama and comedy series are returning series. They're not new things. And so I, I don't know what, to expect, which is why I'm always more interested in the limited series category because it's going to rotate and be different every single year. Just because, like, of course, Killing Eve is going to get nominated every single year because the quality of it is consistent every single year. Same for Succession. Same for, you know, the I mean, Kaminsky Method. Like, whatever you want to talk about here. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Handmaid's, Handmaid's Tale is, like, another one that's just nominated every single year. Like, I don't watch most of those shows, but it makes sense to me. Like, once you're good, like, the expectation is that you're still good. And unless you do something to really screw that up, you're going to keep getting nominated and that's not super interesting, which is why I take the limited series TV movie. I mean, less of the TV movies, but the limited series categories a lot more. I find them to be a lot more interesting a lot, and I take them a lot more seriously. And that's why I'm happy that un, you know, unbelievable and Tony Collette uh, did get nominations there. I, I personally would have gone for, um, for merit uh, Weaver, but uh, I'm not going to complain at all that Tony Collette got nominated. Yeah, maybe that's uh, some justice for her not getting that uh, hereditary nomination that many thought that she deserved a couple of years ago. Yeah, I mean, I would have been okay with both, all three of them, Caitlin Deaver, Tony Collette, Merritt Weaver, all getting nominations, but uh, maybe that speaks to the same the same shows getting nominated for everything. I don't yeah. know. Uh, Watchmen did that this year instead, right? With like Regina King, Gene Smart, Yaya Abdul-Mateen, Louis Gossett Jr. Blake Nelson get in there? I don't, know. I don't think Tim. I don't think Tim Blake Nelson. That's a shame, because I thought he was fantastic. He was one of the standouts for me, but... I like Lewis Gossett Jr. who plays the younger. Sure. Yeah. 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 In the flashbacks and stuff. And then, yeah, Paul Mescal. Well, Lewis Gossett Jr. is the older Will. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 You're right. You're right. You're right. Um, shaking my head that Jim Parsons got a nomination for Hollywood. Whatever. Um, Paul Mescal, yeah, though. What, what is the deal with Hollywood getting so many? I mean, like, that show was not that well received. Like, uh, now that is another example of somebody who just like breathes and it seems like they get in there like uh, Ryan Murphy. Well, the politician didn't like didn't thank god i thought it got something like last year or i guess it hasn't been online maybe at the globes i mean it might have at the globes yeah maybe that's what i'm thinking of yeah but we don't respect um, the globes that was that was kind of a a weird one for me too but yeah those are my thoughts yeah well uh lenny abramson paul mescal go get those awards sons please do yeah all right scott uh where can people find you on twitter i am at scarvy dent awesome I can be found at shelton 2013 over on Twitter, where you can still find our podcast, although I don't think we've tweeted in ages at this point, yeah, at Media Plug Pods. Uh, more likely uh, uh, to receive anything coming from the account, uh, you should subscribe to our newsletter if you actually want some stuff yeah. to hit your inbox. Uh, Scott is doing great stuff with the, with the newsletter every single week. Don't forget to check that out. Uh, sign up in the, in the link in the episode notes. And don't forget to check out our podcast Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash Media Plug Pods. 
Uh, if you choose not to support us over on Patreon, that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts, where we'd appreciate if you did all the podcast things, rate, review, subscribe, share. And that should do it. We appreciate all of you taking time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies. And we'll once again be taking a one-week break as Scott is actually going on vacation this time. His summer break is happening. He is going to Wisconsin. Do not contact him. He will not respond. He will not have internet. He is going and roughing it in the woods. Can't wait to come back and hear about all the bears that he killed with his bare hands up in the Wisconsin jungle. There are bears in Wisconsin? I don't think there are. How about moose? Yeah, no, there are probably some of this. Yeah, well... Anyway, come back, come back in two weeks' time to hear about all the uh, enthralling stories he'll bring back from. Uh, I guess is, is Wisconsin COVID riddled? It probably is. Yeah, it is. Midwest sounds like it probably is. Anyway, we'll be back in two weeks' time where Scott and I will be reviewing the Netflix superhero film, superhero film, ooh, Enunciate, uh, starring Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That's called Project Power. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.